the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello there, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today, we'll hear from Dr. Joanne Blannon. She's currently the Digital Learning Leader at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne. She recently computed, completed her Doctorate of Education, looking at teachers and schools using the internet in the classrooms. She's taught in England, France, Michigan, before settling down in Australia, and she has been a teacher in private and public schools, in outdoor education, and even in foreign language settings. Before moving to the university, she had a leadership role in a school and in the Department of Education, supporting the use of laptops, iPads, and interactive whiteboards. She helped teachers find learning opportunities in the classroom. Josie's technology to be a powerful force for learning, but also recognizes the hurdles and challenges that parents and teachers face in the day-to-day use of technology. She's a self-confessed tech nut, but really what I appreciate about Joe is her balanced perspective. She understands that technology is a tool, but not always the best tool for learning. If you like this episode, please connect with the Intersection Education on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, at Intersection Ed, and we're even on Facebook. It also helps us out when you rate and leave a review on iTunes. Here's my conversation with Dr. Joanne Blannon. Hello, Dr. Blannon. Uh, thanks for speaking to me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All the way from Australia. Yeah, all the way from Melbourne. That's uh, That's wonderful. Um, so let's let's get right to it right at the beginning. So uh, I I know that you've had a varied history uh, of teaching in different places. So I'm really interested to find out about about your career as a teacher. How did you become a teacher, and what were some of your uh, teaching experiences so far that have uh, really informed your practice? Yeah. So I guess the first teaching I ever did was when I was 13. They gave me a Sunday school class of five year olds um, at my church. And um, they just said, entertain them for an hour and we'll be back. Um, So that was my first teaching experience and learning that teaching is much more than just telling people to do things. Um, All through my high school, uh, people and teachers and my friends at high school would tell me that I was going to be a teacher. And being a teenager, I said, absolutely not. I don't want to be a teacher. Never doing that. Um, And then, of course, um, a few years later, I found myself working in northern Michigan in the States. Um, as one of the directors of an outdoor education camp for the YMCA. So it was um, became clear to me that that is teaching and that teaching doesn't have to be necessarily the sitting in rows facing the front and listening to people, um, but really it's about um, connections and understanding and learning, and that social connection um, was really important, obviously, in outdoor education where you're doing things like climbing big trees and throwing yourself off zip lines and canoeing and hiking and uh, all of the snowshoeing in the winter and skiing and those kind of things. So um, I think that really gave me a sense of what education could be and what you could be doing with people as a teacher. 
um, which was really exciting. I bet. Um, that sounds like uh, a, a dream job. Um, <laughs> a, lifestyle, <laughs> now, a lifestyle, really. <laughs> absolutely. Now, was that formal school teaching or was that kind of um, just the, uh, an outdoor camp or something like that? Yeah, so it's an outdoor camp that ran lots of um, outdoor education programs. So teaching things like geology by walking along the shore and picking up Petoskey Steins. If you live in Michigan, you know what they are. Um, or it might be um, heading out to the meadow and talking about the different um, bio area, you know, biology in that area, the different biomes that existed and what interconnected with what. Or it might be canoeing out into the middle of the lake um, and teaching them actually how to canoe so we don't fall over. Um, but also uh, talking about depth um, and water pressure and air pressure and um, changes of temperature as we go up and as we go down and how humans can only live on this little bit in the middle and those kind of things. So it was really um, hands-on learning. So it had a formal curriculum, but it was very differently delivered than a school. Mm. Very cool. That sounds really interesting. Now, uh, I know that one of your uh, big subjects that you like to talk about and one of the things that I, I'm really hoping that we'll talk about today is um, is technology and learning and all that kind of stuff. How did you go from outdoor education to a focus on the use of technology? Because it seems like really the opposite end of the spectrum. It does until you kind of think about it in a different way. So for me, if I think of um, the kind of learning that I could get um, young adults and uh, ad older adults, I had five-year-olds up to 90-year-olds up trees and doing ropes courses and things in the States. And the kind of learning that they need is personalized, put your left foot here, put your right foot out there, look at me, turn, turn this way. Those kind of step-by-step -step instructions at point of need personalized for people's learning is really how I see technology working in a classroom. So for me, technology isn't for busy work. It's not a babysitter. Um, and if it is, you've, you've wasted your money. You've bought very expensive pencils, I call them. Um, but if you can see technology as a learning tool in the way that we navigated someone up a climbing wall, for example, and think about the step-by-step -step learning and the personalized learning, Technology helps a teacher in the classroom do that because you can't, as one teacher, meet every individual need of every student in a class of 25, no matter if they're five years old or 18 years old or older, um, whereas technology can offer you um, ways to do that. So uh, through learning pathways, through um, artificial intelligence, um, through uh, simple things like quizzes and understanding where students are in their learning so that we can actually use it to personalize so it's really from being up a tree. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it all starts. I love it. It's where it started. <laughs> um, now, what, what does it look like today? So let's talk about your role right today at the University of Melbourne. What um, What is a typical day or what does a typical teaching load look like for you? And what are some of the projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, it wouldn't be nice if there was a typical day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there is one. Um, so my role, I work at the Graduate School of Education. So we have kind of two arms, and one side um, of that arm is preparing t people to become teachers, so pre-service teacher training um, in a Master of Teaching course. And the other side is professional master's courses for people who are already teachers. So learning about perhaps leadership in education or positive psychology in education, those kind of things. So my role um, in amongst those two arms is I'm the digital learning leader. Um, and that involves me um, working across the whole staff 
to identify what it is they're working on in their areas. So they might be um, teaching someone how to be a maths teacher. So we might talk to them about, look at their planning. Do you realize that you could personalize this, that you could demonstrate to your pre-service teachers these things, these practices as good teaching, using technology as a digital pedagogy, so as a digital way of learning and teaching. So another type of te pedagogy might be standing up the front and making the students repeat what you say, or another pedagogy might be making a diorama or a poster. So if we think of technology as a digital pedagogy, then it adds another tool to our toolkit that can help us improve those learning experiences. So that's what I do around the faculty, both for our staff and for our students. And then indirectly by the children to the children in schools. And that's what I was <laughs> going to ask. I was going to ask, do you teach um, these pedagogies to the teachers to model while they are teaching the pre-service teachers or do you teach them directly so that the teachers can go in and, and use these these pedagogies in the classroom and it sounds like a little bit of both yeah it is both and there are two layers and part of my um part of my load apart from the digital learning leader is actually teaching in educational leadership subjects so looking at how do we lead change in today's schools and teaching those. So a lot of those skills I use with the staff yeah. <laughs> because they're also having to change practice as well as the teachers in schools are changing practice and the students are having to learn how to change their practices too. If you're in um, year nine, which is like a 14, 15 year old in Australia, then you have had a, quite a few years of traditional learning probably. So if you then have a new teacher come in with new pedagogies, the students also have to learn to learn in a different way. Yeah, I love that. I love the the, the idea of um, thinking about how the students is gonna, student is going to interact with that new pedagogy. Let, mm -hmm. Let's move into that area. Let's move into the classroom. So if you were to say, mm -hmm. and you still work a little bit in classrooms throughout, if you're going around and you're you're seeing the pedagogies that are used and you're seeing the technology use, what is the what is the one thing that you most often see that you would love to perhaps work on or what is one thing that you would say right now that you would love to see perhaps changed or um let's say ameliorated, you know, we can get better there. Yeah, yeah, so I think thing that comes up every time I have conversations, whether it's with our staff, teachers, pre-service teachers, students, um, parents, um, school council meetings who oversee schools here in Australia, um, we, the thing that I want to get across to people is that not all technology use is effective technology use. That there is not, um, you cannot put an iPad in the hand of every seven-year-old and say, look, we're a technology school or look, we're preparing students for the future because the device is inanimate. However much we build, you know, how much we talk about it, these things are inanimate. Even with artificial intelligence, that's somebody else's intelligence that they are um, coding to apply to situations. So not all tech use is good tech use. And um, some of the work I'm doing here um, and also in New South Wales and um, across schools in Victoria is talking to teachers about, well, how do you make those decisions? How do you decide what is effective technology use? Because we've probably all, um, when, you know, 2010, the iPad was first in schools here in Victoria. And I think we uh, saw a lot of this kind of thing going on where a teacher would find, sit at home playing on their iPad at night going, oh, I should really use the iPads this week. Oh, here's a really cool skip counting game to help my 
seven-year-olds count by twos and it's frogs and there's lily pads and the frog has to jump from lily pad to lily pad in a counting pattern of two and if they don't the frog falls off and it starts again so that's okay but how is that what is that offering to that student's learning that a piece of paper with a frog and a counter and a roll of a dice isn't so it has to actually add something so there are frameworks that we use some of them are um, like the the Samer model um, is quite popular in schools. It has its um, challenges, but it, it gives us a framework of language so that we're talking about is technology just substituting for something we already did, like the frog and the lily pad example? Is it augmenting? Is it adding something? So yes, it corrects the child when they get it wrong, but does it actually give any feedback? Is it really augmenting? Um, and then we have to ask ourselves if it's, if the task is being modified by the opportunities the technology provides or whether it's totally redefining everything that it's that you're doing in class. So there's no more frogs and lily pads, um, <laughs> but there's something much more um, purposeful for students um, and useful. Yeah. Mm. When you see classroom instruction using technology at its best, and mm-hmm. you know maybe you're going to use a SAMR model or, or anything like that, what would you say – you see. So what are the the observable characteristics of amazing technology use in class? Yeah, so the first thing I think is student-centered learning. So you see that the students, um, not just given permission to make decisions by the teachers, but are involved in whether they should be making decisions. So that it's true student-centered learning. And technology can do that because information is so readily available and as teachers we're becoming more and more important because we have to help students make decisions about all this information um, and become critical um, consumers of that information but it needs to be a good exciting use of technology in, has always been student-centered um, in my experience it's where the students are um, engaged in what they're doing because they're answering questions using technology that they're actually interested in so they don't care about frogs and lily pads. They might actually care about their local football team um, and the scores and the averages and what they might predict for this weekend. And, you know, all of those kind of real world connections that are actually engaging them. And technology enables um, the personalization of that across a classroom. Because as a teacher standing in front of 25 students, I could do soccer and half the class are not interested if I use soccer as the context. So it's about um, technology engaging them um, and letting them have that personal engagement with knowledge not holding it back um, because we know you know if you can google it why are we learning it um, well we're learning it because there's more to life than simply knowing facts <laughs> we have to be able to make sense of connect of, uh, of knowledge and connect it to other ideas but we need to move beyond just the searching for the answers so student-centered engaged and personalized i would say that's what you can see in a exciting technology-enabled classroom that's wonderful that sounds like um great characteristics and, and something we would strive for in every single class but it sounds like yeah here the technology is really allowing you to personalize that um one question that I have, or perhaps a barrier that comes up often here, is access. So, you know, I don't have enough money. Maybe we don't have enough devices. The students aren't bringing theirs. Do you have any um, maybe insights or, or great ways that you've seen to 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 get around that? Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen some innovative practice in Australia that that you think is um, needs to be shared? Well, I think that's going to be a challenge until until we have enough kind of 
generations of technology that the earlier versions that parents are getting rid of can come into classrooms. <laughs> That's what I'm kind of hoping for. So um, we know that schools aren't going to be able to financially maintain um, technology for every child. So in Australia, a big thing in the last five to 10 years has been one-to-one -one programs. So one student, one device. Um, some schools have gone to many-to-one, so many devices to one student. Um, and the opposite, so many students to one device. And in whatever model you see, and I've seen all of those models work well, and all of those models work really quite poorly. <laughs> um, and it always comes down to the teacher. So if you don't have access to a set of brand new iPads to run that app, um, a teacher who's passionate about the type of learning that that app would enable will find a way. Um, and they do that um, out of my research, I I found they do that because they work in teams to do it. So they share resources, they um, work on activities that don't require a one-to-one -one kind of program, they scaffold students through different types of technologies so that whatever they've got in front of them they can use. Um, and then of course bring your own device programs are increasingly popular in Australia where students can bring those three-year-old iPhones or five-year-old iPads or dad's old work laptop or those kind of things. In Australia, we have, it's, I can't remember the exact number, it's about 86% connectivity um, across the country. So 86% of households have um, Wi-Fi internet. Right. So there are, we obviously are a very big country with a lot of um, rural and remote areas. Um, but the majority of our population lives around the edges um, and the majority of our population has access to Wi-Fi. Um, and what we're finding in some of the social um, kind of research that's happening is that parents who perhaps um, are lower socioeconomic areas, who are struggling perhaps financially, they're actually prioritizing things like Wi-Fi over um, shopping bills or you know going to the supermarket or um, heating or those things but the wi-fi and the mobile phone plan is actually becoming more and more important yeah. to them and we're seeing so, many of the same things here in canada and north america i mean in fact there's been some politicians that want to uh, put in wi-fi or internet access as a basic right and i think that that's interesting to if we start thinking about that as information access yeah, in Melbourne City, the um, local mayor has um, launched free Wi-Fi across the city. doesn't actually work that well just yet, but I think it's a good step forward. Yeah. <laughs> That again, I think that's really great practical advice. I think that you know you're you're talking about um, operating system agnostic and and really getting into the core of what 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 you're trying to accomplish with that technology as opposed to the shiny new device and thing that you got to mm -hmm. use. So I think that that's great advice. One of the other topics that you often uh, research or talk about is this idea of preparing kids for the future. And one of my favorite quotes about education is from Gordon Brown, and that's, to be a teacher, you must be a prophet because you're trying to prepare people for a world 30 to 50 years in the future. And what I take from that is we don't really know what the technology is going to look like, what world is going to look like, the skills they're going to need to be successful. So what advice would you give to teachers about how to prepare their students for an unknown future? Yeah, I think it's not necessarily advice to teachers because I think teachers worldwide, well, in many countries, are constrained by um, the systems that they work in. So I think for me, first of all, I think that this idea of preparing students for the future can be really scary 
um, particularly for teachers, particularly if you've been in the profession for 30 years, you feel like you're an expert and all of a sudden you're a novice. So this stuff is pretty confronting and we need to work to support our teachers. Um, the other thing is that we don't know what's going to happen in 30 to 50 years in the future, but we do have a really good sense of what's going to happen in the next three to five years. So New Media Consortium um, regularly put out the Horizon Report, um, which is worth a look. And it has been over the last 15 years incredibly accurate on what um, is going to appear in classrooms um, from a technology perspective. So, for example, things like makerspaces and virtual reality and um, flexible learning environments were all predicted ahead of time by this um, report. So we have a sense of some of the things that are happening and we have a sense of the trends. And looking at the, the trends in curriculum design around the world, we can see that um, curriculums aren't necessarily shrinking. Uh, we're adding to them with these so-called soft skills or 21st century skills. And I'm not sure either of those terms really does just does justice to the ideas of what they mean. So um, things like the, the four C's, you know, creativity, critical thinking, um, and all of the other different lists of skills that our students are supposed to have. So I think the more we look at an unknown future and the more we consider what we do know now we can start to think about the fact that yes learning our times table is still important because it frees up um, mental space when we're making calculations it helps us function in the world but if that's all we ever learn in mathematics um, times tables then is that really going to suit us in the future well no because we're going to need problem solving skills we're going to need to think creatively um, to be critical consumers when we see charts and graphs that says this product worked um, 99 percent effective uh, you know all these kind of things it's that stuff that our students need and i think today's teachers and most of the teachers i speak to and work with talk about this too that this is where their focus needs to be now not necessarily on um, okay, you got one out of 10 in your spelling test. That's important too, but it's not the only thing we need our students to leave with. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, we have a good conception of the short-term skills, and then we have some longer-term skills that are, might be more nebulous. But we can kind of have a sense because the underlying general skills, not the specific skills, but the general skills we can work on, I think that that's, that's a good balance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in the past it has been very much, we've been given curriculum documents. Um, so in the UK, in France where I worked, in the States and in Australia, you get presented with a list of skills that your students must demonstrate by the end of the year, um, regardless of whether they know those skills at the beginning of the year. <laughs> so it's it's about, um, it is back to the idea of personalizing and student-centered learning that develops thinking skills alongside traditional um literacy numeracy skills. Right. Let's get into another area that I know that you are, are really knowledgeable about and you speak uh, about, and that's um, kind of a hybrid area, and that's for parents. Um, I know here in Alberta, the Alberta Teachers Association done has, has done a little bit of research around um, polling parents and, and, and their their visions and their opinions on use of technology. 
One of the things that was surprising to me was that over a quarter of parents in Alberta thought their child was using too much technology at school. Now, you pair that with this growing sentiment, um, things like Dr. Gene Twenge uh, with the iGen book, I think that's out of the University of San Diego, who is now forwarding some research about maybe this is actually leading to some mental health issues, uses of smartphones and everything like that. How do you respond to some of that, that, that growing body of research as well as public sentiment that is almost a backlash or a pushback against technology? Yeah, I, I think the first question I would ask um, is how is the technology actually being used? And we know that that comes down to teachers' choices who are informed by leadership, who are informed by systems and governments. So that teacher in that class is choosing to use technology. Perhaps it's because they've been told they should. Um, or they've been shown how to do a specific um, lesson on a piece of a digital technology. Um, we would have similar kind of conversations here about too much technology at school, um, perhaps not a full quarter as this report suggests, but I think there is, there, there is scope for us not to be alarmist but to be um, considered about what our students are doing in the online space. And we know um, that students and adults learn through social interactions. So, for example, if the technology use is getting in the way of that type of learning, then we need to pull back and we need to go, this is not how learning is going to take place for this child in this moment. But for those children over there who've socially constructed ideas and concepts in their head and they need practice or they need um, further exploration of a concept, technology might be the way to go. So I do talk to parents quite a lot who say it's just too much screen time and there are some um, kind of health and safety ideals around that that we really should consider. Um, and I would urge parents to think about technology as they would anything else. So if you take them to um, soccer training on a Saturday morning, um, do you just um, throw them out the door of the car and keep moving and say, oh, you do this better than me, off you go, sort it out? Um, you know, would we send them off to a new country and say, figure it out? And those are analogies I often use with parents because you can't just expect children to pick up devices and have the skills. Um, so this idea of digital natives and digital immigrants, which I don't know about in Canada, but in Australia, it's really pervasive in the media still. And I really want to challenge those titles because I think they're part of this problem that we're having in that some parents um, really see themselves as digital immigrants, meaning that they've come to technology later in life. They don't have an innate um, understanding of it, whereas their children do. And I think that's that can be challenging um, and if you look at some of the the um, well-being research like you were suggesting the mental health research some of that is connecting it to these ideas that we're delegating responsibility to students that are just a bit too young and they haven't got these skills and so many of the skills that students need to work in the online environment are the skills they need to um, go to a supermarket and buy the groceries. These are these are skills that as adults we have always taught children, but in the online space, because perhaps we're not as confident, um, we're not engaging with those skills. And it's about getting parents to realize that these these are ideas that have been around a long time. Yeah. yeah. 
I think that's some great advice for parents. And I think that it's also some sage advice for teachers and thinking about their use. So yeah, that's, that's great stuff. Um, let's move into, uh, education more generally. And my question to you is, is there something about education that you believe is true that most people or maybe some people would disagree with you on? Yeah, I think because I come to education as a teacher, so I come to it as as a way of learning and teaching. So some people go for it because of the flashy tools, and I like the flashy tools and the new devices and the gadgets. They're always fun. Um, but I come to it from an education point of view. And I think that some people, perhaps it's changing. I don't want to be too harsh. But I think some people still feel that um, students can be put into boxes and um that child will never reach this level or that this activity won't work for that child or this one is ready to do that. And it's about um, really understanding students as individuals, um, which is some of the work that um, our professor here, John Hattie, does a lot of and talks a lot about too, is that it's uh, people think that there are boxes into which students fit. And I would suggest that every child can learn. And if they haven't learned then it's your job as a teacher to keep trying until they do. Um, And that might be adjusting goals, adjusting strategies, um, delivery methods, um, different groupings, whatever it is, um, which might include technology, might not. Um, But as a teacher, that is your job. Every single child can learn and should learn when they're at school with you. When you think of the term master teacher, who comes to mind, what comes to mind and why? Right. I think master teacher is, yeah, that's a good one. I don't know if I have a specific person um, from school education. If you've ever seen Professor John Hattie present, um, you would see some of these qualities because he's he's quite extraordinary how um, the other week he was teaching 130 adults um, for a two and a half hour session and nobody wriggled once. <laughs> it was it was uh, impressive. A master teacher to me um, is really someone who you walk into a classroom and they're as excited and engaged and interested in what is happening in that room as the children are. And I think that's when you get student-centered learning that is exciting for everybody involved. Interesting, because we often talk about John Hattie as the great researcher. So that's the first time I've heard John Hattie as the great educator (laughs) and teacher. And I have seen him present and he is outstanding. So I would, yeah, I would agree with that. (laughs) Let's get on to our next question. Let's say we were to imagine uh, teaching in its most essential. And let's say teaching was easy. What do you think that that would look like if we reduced it to to its core so that it was in quotation marks easy? I think it's saying, doing, and making things that you haven't done before. <laughs> I think it's it comes down to um, taking ideas or constructs that you've developed in your head and being able to bring them to other contexts. So um, I'm thinking of like a maker space. I don't know. Is that a big thing in Canada? It the is. Maker yeah, movement? it's uh, definitely yeah. uh, a growing, but it's it's definitely there along with um, learning commons usually. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, 
Um, the makerspace, for if people don't know what it is, is really about um, tinkering, bringing along ideas, thoughts, concepts, and trying to build, um, learning science through doing, uh, exploring STEM ideas um, in an open space where there is little regulation, apart from safety, hopefully. Um, but um, really, I think if you think about what is teaching, um, I think it's hard to say what teaching is at its most essential without thinking about what learning is at its most essential because you can't have one without the other, really, because you can't effectively teach unless there is learning going on. Otherwise, you're just someone stood in the front talking, <laughs> which isn't teaching. So I think that idea of, um, if you think of a makerspace and making, doing, and saying collaboratively things that you haven't done before. I like it. Um, my next question is, do you have a, a, a favorite success or failure as a teacher in your career. And what I say by favorite is that you, you've talked often about approaching teacher as a teaching as a learner and, and, mm -hmm. and approaching that. So we often have these experiences where we reflect on and they've taught us something really important. What, what are one of those experiences that you've had? Yeah, I guess as a teacher, probably coming from my work with teachers is probably where I've got the best example and I think it probably is a success and a failure in the same way. I was working in one school here in Australia about 10 years ago now. No, it can't be 10 years ago. It was when the iPads had just come out and I'd managed to raise some funds at the school to buy iPads for the prep teachers, which is our five-year-olds kindergarten age. And we um, bought iPads and I spent a year building up to this, raising money. Um, I bought an iPad myself and lent it to teachers to use. And I felt like this was going to be a way to engage teachers in technology in an immediate way uh, through apps and um, learning and getting the kids excited too. And most of the teachers, when I finally, um, in the December, our school year ends in December, in the December, I said to the teachers I'm going to give you all an iPad to take home it's yours it's not the school's we're going to count it as yours over the summer so we have a seven eight week break over December January and they all except one teacher took them and said awesome I'm going to download the newspaper I'm going to play this game I'm going to email my friends I'm going to Skype my kids overseas they were all excited they all had these personal engagements with the device already from what they'd heard except for one teacher and he was really reluctant he wouldn't even physically touch the box of the iPad um, he just felt it wasn't part of being a teacher it wasn't going to be part of his teaching so he didn't need it so we compromised and he took it and locked it in his um, filing cabinet in his office um, over the summer break um, the middle of the following year so I'd been working with this, those teachers every week up until then and this um, teacher had been challenging um, the ideas and uses of the technology and actually in a really professional helpful way that clarified lots of our thinking but he wasn't able to use any of this technology himself because the, the iPad was in his drawer and then um, in the middle of the year I was taking those iPads back so that I could do updates and technical admin stuff and they were going to be gone for two weeks and unbeknownst to those the rest of us this teacher had quietly opened his iPad and was using it and refused to give it back to me <laughs> for the update. So um, the exciting thing for me was that he came and he said, I can't give it back to you because over those two weeks, I'm going to help these three students learn to read. 
and I've got a plan for that iPad and I'm going to do it with these apps. And if you take that away from me, I'm going to be disadvantaging my students and it's an equity problem and I cannot give you the iPad back. And so I felt like it was a huge failure at the beginning because I obviously hadn't prepared him enough at the end. But in hindsight, I think it was really about meeting teachers where they are on this journey of learning and moving towards different ways of teaching and learning. So this teacher just needed to get to that point where he'd had the discussions, he'd seen it work, he'd seen it fail, he'd seen people try again, and he had a plan. And once he got that plan, he was not going to give it up. <laughs> and so I think that um, really sticks with me as something I've learned about working with teachers when we think about technology in schools, because we have to understand them as individual learners as well as our students. Let's move into what I like to call a lightning round, which is um, a shorter response. So I'm um, looking for a quick hitter. Um, and if it's particularly interesting, we'll, we'll maybe drill down. But uh, a shorter response. Your favorite education-related app or website? Edmodo. Edmodo. Book that you quote, refer to, or have marked up the most? Um, it will be... <laughs> There's a book by Bill Rogers called You Know the Fair Rule, which is about um, behavior management. Um, and it's about how you talk to kids as individuals in the classroom uh, called You Know the Fair Rule. And um, I give copies of sections of that to all my graduate teachers every year. Awesome. What's one thing that you do every day or most days that helps you to be well or healthy? I go running. <laughs> in the very hilly area around my house. <laughs> what is an organization or a person that uh, is inspiring you lately? We have, an, it's a little bit in-house, so I hope you don't mind, but it's um, we have um, Professor David Clark here who runs the Science of Learning Research Classroom. And it is a normal classroom that we bring students into, and it has two glass walls and many, many cameras from many, many angles. And there's a viewing gallery. So it's like one-way uh, mirrors. And we use that to understand exactly how students are making sense. And some of um, his work is fascinating and so essential for uh, the future of education. Awesome. What was the name of that project again? Or what was the... Science Learning Research Center. Science and then there's, the, yeah, and then there's the um, classroom as well. Wonderful. All right, let's talk about what's next for you. What are some of the uh, questions or problems that you're looking at, maybe some of the projects or articles you're looking to write? Uh, well, I've just uh, finished my doctorate last year, so I'm madly publishing from that some of the findings. I looked at um, why some teachers use technology um, and some don't. Mm -hmm. You go into schools and you often see these pockets of excellence, we call them, little groups of teachers that are doing amazing things with digital pedagogies and then other teachers that aren't. So I'm publishing from that, um, talking about how leadership can impact on teachers' use of technologies, how an understanding of the way the world is changing can impact on teachers' use of technologies. So if their day-to-day -day life is changing because of technology, they appear more likely to use technology effectively in the classrooms. Um, and I'm also working on a couple of projects around the ideas of STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and maths. So how do we bring those ideas together to develop those uh, student-centered, engaging, and personal learning experiences that we talked about before? That sounds very exciting. We'll uh, be, I'll be looking forward to that. Now, let's say people want to connect with you. What are some of the best ways that they can uh, follow your stuff or connect with you? Yeah, so I have a blog called The Techno Parent, and 
techno is spelt K-N-O-W, as in do you know enough, techno parent, um, and also on Twitter where I'm at Joe Blanin. Excellent. Thank you so much again, Dr. Blanin. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Joanne Blanin. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.